Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that the school that I teach in, the Brookwood School in Manchester, Massachusetts, about 30 miles north of Boston on Cape Ann, we are looking for a proficiency-oriented French and Spanish teacher to join our language department. We offer French and Spanish from grades 1 through 8, so this position would be teaching both languages to various grade levels from 1 through 8, depending on the year and the schedule. But please, if you are interested in joining our department, please check out the link in the show notes and be sure to pass it on to somebody that you know who might be interested in moving to the North Shore of Boston area or if they're already in the area and looking for an opportunity. And maybe sometime really soon, we could be teaching side-by-side, helping all of our students to rise in language proficiency and communicate with confidence. So be sure to check out the link or pass it on to somebody you know who might be interested. Now, let's jump into this episode. In this episode, we're talking about the concept of micro-instruction and micro-teaching. I'm joined by Lindsay Mitchell, a Spanish teacher in New Hampshire, who walks us through the benefits of using this micro-teaching approach in the language classroom. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom Podcast. I am Joshua Cabral, and as always, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your week to be with us, to think about your teaching, and then bring that back into your classroom. So thank you on behalf of your students for doing that. And your colleagues as well, because then you end up having great conversations with your colleagues. So it goes much further than just with your students. While I have your attention, and hopefully we'll have your attention for about 30 minutes here, uh, look down at your phone real quickly. Make sure that you're subscribing, following, whatever it's asking you to do so that you get every episode as they come out. And you might want to leave a rating or review there as well, because that will help other teachers to find this podcast. We're going to jump in to our topic for today, and it might be a new word to you. I mean, if you take the word micro and you take the word teaching, like, you know, micro is small and teaching is teaching, but you put it together and it's like, so what does that mean for the classroom? And how is that going to be applicable and actionable for me in my classroom? Well, luckily today, uh, we're going to be joined by Lindsay Mitchell, who I had the pleasure of seeing in person. Yes, people, we are starting to like open up a little bit more and we're going to conferences. And I saw her workshop on micro teaching at the New Hampshire conference a couple of weeks back. And I went up to her right after and I said, I want you on my podcast. We need to talk about this on my podcast. So uh, I love doing that during conference season where I get to go around and see people. And I'm like, okay, 
let's have more of a conversation about this and let's record it so other people can hear it. That would be really cool. So uh, Lindsay is in New Hampshire and she is a Spanish teacher. She's been doing that for about 15 years, but she did have a little bit of a stint as a French and Latin teacher along the way. So you can see that a lot of this is not just specifically to Spanish. And she also has a lot of experience with online teaching as well for almost the same amount of time, about 14 years, and specifically teaching for the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School. So this stuff that we're going to be talking about is really applicable for the physical classroom, but she knows what she's talking about when it comes to a lot of the virtual world as well. So I hope I did some justice in kind of showing who you are a little bit to the world, Lindsay, but thank you so much for being here with us today. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I enjoy listening to the podcast. It's what I listen to on my runs. I'm a competitive runner, so I usually have three or four podcasts all queued up. That pretty much sums it up. You know, the biggest thing I always like to say as an educator, I have a diverse amount of experience. Um, I've taught everything from kindergartners to adults, regular classrooms, online classrooms, Montessori. You've not lived, you've tried to teach Spanish to 25, four-year-olds at the same time. That's, that's an experience in itself. But yeah, you did it justice. You know, I think this diversity of experience is really a good thing. You know, the other thing I would like to bring into my teaching style a little bit is my background. Like before I became a teacher, I worked in politics and public administration and other stuff. So it's like life experience. It always brings some interesting perspectives. So what was that previous to teaching professional world all about for you? Because I'm I what I've I remember when I was listening to you talk and explain these concepts of micro teaching, I could see how you were pulling in from things that we don't normally talk about as teachers that we should be talking about. You know, so what was that experience before teaching that you brought to the teaching world? So in terms of experience, I went to college for political science and then French and Spanish. So originally I wanted to work in politics and more specifically political strategy <laughs> and how to get people to do things and get them motivated and excited. And the same thing carried through to public administration. So I think when I came into and public administration involved working for towns where they would be working with the schools from a different lens. And I think a lot of that framed how I viewed what I did in the classroom a little bit. So I came into teaching on a very different track. And I think sometimes it's hard because I don't understand the things that happened within the school initially back then. But it also gives me a different way of approaching a problem sometimes. And I think that sometimes helps a little bit. I think that's important with with teachers. We... We, we don't look outside of our zone of experience sometimes, and it's good to have someone look at it with fresh eyes. You know, and it's not, let's not just do it this way because it's the way we've always done it. Let, let's try something new. So that's a great perspective to bring in. So let's look at some of the, like, maybe some of the specifics that you brought into the classroom with you to help you teach or deal with students in a different way than other teachers were, or maybe even based on your own experience as a student? When I came into classroom, one thing I noticed is sometimes I was being asked to do things um, and I was being told this is the right way to do it. And I'm going, this just doesn't seem to work. You know, based off my training before I came to teaching, the, I, I, the idea was to get to the end goal. And in the classroom, my goal was to have my students confident and using and understanding the language. And they weren't confident. 
and I couldn't keep on doing what I was doing and I didn't have buy-in in our engagement. And I mean, I could get the kids that really wanted to learn to get there, but the unmotivated, the unengaged, they just seemed flat was just the best way to do it. And I'm going, this just doesn't seem to work. A lot of what made me kind of go, aha, a little bit, if you will. Um, I'd say kind of, I came up with my own little weird ways to do it, you know, as the first few years of teaching. And then I started working on the instructional design degree. And that's when I first started learning about micro teaching or micro learning. And I got, oh, okay. I wonder how this would work in the classroom because it seems to work in the professional development field. How could this work in the classroom? I'm very much a problem solver personality. And I think that's where the impetus came, if you will. So looking back at sort of your initial, your foray into the classroom after your (laughs) previous life before that, (laughs) as you were coming in and like the materials that are out there, that textbooks, published materials, curriculum, did, did you see them as really focused on the high flyer students? The, like what, like, I'm sure that that was part of the problem. So like, what were your feelings about materials you were seeing? Well, I was looking at these materials and they're designed to help someone learn really well. And I can see exactly what they're doing for your high flyers. But for a student who's not particularly engaged, sometimes it's just a lot or it's just not just something about just fall seems flat. It doesn't seem engaging. And then I used to take a look at this activity. For example, you would see these speaking activities within the books and, you know, you always follow them and some kids love them and some it's like pulling teeth to get them to do it. And I'm like, well, why don't we just change the prompt? Why don't we shift it to this? Talking about video games, comparing and contrasting this. Next thing you know, I have a class that's completely excited. Sometimes I think when we design, and this I know I have to watch myself, and when I've helped design professional development, webinars, I have to think about who am I designing for? Am I designing for the most engaged, the most skilled? And that's sort of where, again, I I think why the instructional design really appealed to me is the idea of designing for every person can feel successful. Because if you do that, if you're engaged to feel successful, if they feel successful and the disengaged also also feel successful, you're going to have a great lesson and everyone's going to remember everything and you don't have to reteach. It's definitely one of those concepts that as teachers, we all know we should do. We all are told that we should do and think we're doing. And then it takes someone coming from outside of the teaching profession to show up and say, wait, I thought you were all doing this. It doesn't really look that way. And it seems to me like the things you were noticing, right? So kind of the wake up call. Yeah. And and I, and, and they were designed with the best of intentions. And I can see exactly. And it was appealing for some, but I thought of... Hmm. You know, sometimes simplicity is best, as you know, I believe simplicity is best. And when you do that, you're able to cater to everyone's interests. Uh, I mentioned materials as one of these sort of obstacles with student learning, but what uh, other obstacles or challenges were you seeing that really made you look for another approach to this teaching? Beyond the materials, I was looking at the way my learners learned. I have a lot of students who need modifications, excuse me, or accommodations. And also I have some that even if they don't have one that you're required to give, they should still get one. You know, my feeling is every student, I will scaffold for any student in my classroom. Whatever scaffolding you need, 
I will provide for you. So that was also some of the other things. Some of the materials, there's just a lot of text, there's a lot of instruction, there's a lot of details. And if you're a student or a learner with processing, you know, challenges, like it takes you longer to process, you can't process five or six steps. And also, depending on just the age and the maturity of your learner, they may not be able to do it anyway, just by their sheer age. So some of it was just, I just noticed the needs of the learners. And also just engagement really is what I just said before is sometimes when something gives the appearance of being teacher created, it has the appearance of appearing to the interest of the students. And when you give the activities in a textbook, sometimes some kids are just like, oh, well, she's just giving us a textbook. We started in the background of what led you to this whole idea of micro teaching. So now let's dive deep into this whole concept of what is micro teaching, the benefits of it. Let's just, you just take it and run. First of all, I'm going to say micro teaching is part of a larger practice that I like to call microinstruction. In short, microinstruction, I like to say, is the reflective practice of ensuring that all of our resources, instruction, content, assessment, because that's part of it, will be presented in such a way that anyone can use, understand its purpose, and access it, act upon it, and be assessed. And this should all be done efficiently. Microinstruction essentially incorporates a lot of other topics. Um, Microteaching is what we're focusing on today, which is the actual delivery of the content. Microlearning is how well someone understands it micro content, the content itself, and the list can go on and on. There's micro project-based learning out there. And the reason why I took the term is when I was doing my initial research on micro teaching, I found micro learning, micro content. And I said, well, why don't we just put this all in the big bag of micro instruction? And it's pretty much based on my belief that to be truly inclusive, engaging, and impactful, instruction really must be designed simply so that anyone can understand what's going on. So microteaching itself is the specific um, instructional practice of designing instruction around core basic competencies. It's very short, focused instruction where the learner has an immediate opportunity to apply it and see how well they learn it. Very often, this is used in the beginning or the core instructional pieces to a unit. Now, to kind of give you some context here, where I found microteaching is I was working in a Boston area nonprofit, and they were having trouble with people retaining information from training. And they found microteaching, microlearning, and they were going, huh, we should incorporate this. So what they did is they had these big, long modules of like an hour. And they broke it up into four. We broke it up into four modules where there was about five minutes of instruction. And then the learners would apply the content and then they would assess them on it. And what we found is they remembered it better. And then I dove a little deeper. I'm like, hmm, this could work in the classroom. And what I found is there is a kind of a slow movement to big movement, depending on who you talk to in the healthcare industry of using micro training to train the staff. And what they would do is they would train them on a new skill or a new policy or a new action. They would watch a video, do a short assessment, and then they would actually have them apply it in a hypothetical situation. And what they found is the people who did this transferred their skills better, they retained the information better, and retraining wasn't necessary. And then I was thinking, you know, this is not that different (laughs) from what we do in the classroom. So I dug a little further 
And then I found they use this practice to teach teachers, but I believe it was over in Europe, where they would actually use micro teaching or micro training to teach teachers how to teach. So they would have them identify something very basic they wanted them to do. They would do it with their students. They would evaluate it, give them feedback, and then they would readjust. So that's sort of the background on micro teaching. Mm -hmm. In our classroom, what it looks like is it's very small instructional pieces where you present content and then the learners get an immediate opportunity to apply it. And then you can kind of give feedback. They can see how well they understand it. And that allows you to pivot more, more easily. Could you give an example of what a piece of that content might be? Let's pretend I'm going to give a grammatical example just for the sake of simplicity. Let's assume we're doing reflexive. We're doing routines. And maybe we're on the core basics. I want them to understand we don't throw a may in front of every single verb. So we, we're reading a story. And then we're talking about... Me levanto a las seis, I get up at six, y después como el desayuno, I eat breakfast. And then we start talking about kind of what's going on here. What does this mean? What does this mean? And then we're going to say, okay, now we're going to say, we're going to talk about them, he or she. And then we go through and we practice going from me levanto, to se levanta, and come, to see if they understand you know, what's going on here? So we don't put a say in front of come. And we do activities. You can do it on whiteboards. You can give them a sentence. You know, some would call this horizontal conjugations. I just say changing the voice. So you give them a sentence. They practice doing it. You go back and forth, back and forth. And if they understand it, then you can move on to whatever the next thing is. And what's nice about this is that's a very core concept. And what happens is as you teach each of these core concepts, it's very interactive. When it actually comes to the time where you might have to do the big lesson, if you will, on what's going on here, everyone already understands it. And the mistakes that you see are far less severe, and there's a much stronger skill transfer. So can you break it down so we can kind of really see what it looks like? The The idea of here's this concept, we're going to learn it and practice it, I think, in listening to that, it's like, yeah, that's what I do. But let's unpack it with really the micro teaching. And can you talk about the the minutes you would spend on each activity so that we can see, oh, that's what we mean by this portion is that amount of time and this portion is that amount of time? Because I think with the with some time on it, we'll be like, oh, that's the concept of micro teaching. So pretty much, um, let me give a good example. So I'll stay with the reflexive just because we're there. So if I have my kids in class, first of all, if you're talking about micro teaching, one thing I'm going to say is your period's not going to be the same activities again and again and again and again and again. What I like to do is 15 minutes of one kind of activity, then we shift to a different one, things like that. So probably to open for the first five minutes, I might have a paragraph that talks about what's going on. I read it out loud to the class and then act it out, sort of help them gather meanings. That will take about three to four minutes. Maybe there's three or four sentences, very short content, very short content. And then in their small groups and pairs, I may have some words underlined in purple, whatever. And it's okay. Talk about what do these mean? What do you think these mean? And then they do that for three to five minutes. And then they go up to the board. They write in English, what does it mean? That all together mm -hmm. should take, for me to present it, about three to five minutes. Takes them about five minutes to talk to each other about it. Then as a class, a community, they determine what's going on. I would say that's kind of the interpretive 
activity that they're doing, working together and collaborating. And then I might say, all right, so what do we think is going on here? And then I might give a list of actions. Let's just stay with reflexive examples. Me levanto, me ducho, me cepillo, things like that. And I do the first couple and I say, okay, so if we want to say he, and I might do the first one, like, so we're going to change it to say. So if you have me levanto, I, I would say, mm-hmm. you can change it from say, and then we would say levanta. Mm-hmm. And the kids go, oh, so you're just changing the me to a say. Okay. And then I might do the next one for three to five minutes and say, okay, as a group, I want you to talk about how do we change the voice for the next three. And then they'll sit down and do it. And then that would take another five to 10 minutes. And then depending on how well they understand, you might try to go back to that original paragraph and have them try to change that over again in in groups. Or if they're still not understanding, then you might have to go back to a more focused activity. Or you could even do a dictation where you say it in Spanish and they write it in English. I'm sort of thinking now, if you have the example you just gave, and you teach it in a way that's not following the sort of the the breakdown of the minutes that you just gave, and it's sort of an all-inclusive, everything at once, now go and learn it, how have you seen that that's not effective? And then what's then the benefit of the process you just talked us through as opposed to that? The problem with presenting everything at once it's too much for the brain to process. Because if you think about it, you are explaining something in a completely different language than their native language. It might take them a few minutes to fully understand. That's the first thing. It's just so much information. The other part of it is if you don't get step one, you're not going to understand step two. You know, one thing, you know, for just, I'm staying on the reflexive verbs just for the example of, I like to start, do you understand the difference between me lavo and lavo? Because if we don't understand that difference, we can't even move on. And if you talk about what, what's going on in a very interactive way, then they can do that. Once they understand the difference of that, then maybe you just start with just going from he to she. Sometimes, you know, when you think of the old school way of teaching stuff like this, you teach the conjugations and then we practice applying it. But the problem is if they never understand the pattern in the first place, they can't apply it. But sometimes maybe just focusing on just like little pieces at a time allows you to see whether they understand it or not. Now, one thing I just want to say, when you do micro teaching, it's going to look different for every teacher. It really just comes down to focusing on very small pieces and where the term microinstruction actually comes from. It's a computer coding term where they take those initial lines of codes and they test each single little one to make sure it works because the bigger program's not going to work. And you can find the breakdown along the way. Exactly. Right. Oh, okay. Now I'm getting it. Now it's making sense. <laughs> I think that as, as teachers are looking at this possibility and it's sort of going from the, but I do activities that take 40 minutes to the, okay, so if I'm going to do it in smaller amounts, I need seven to 10 minute activities. I was wondering, and I know you have a lot of these uh, because I sat in your workshop and heard a lot of them, but can you give us some examples for our teacher tool bag of some of those seven to 10 minute types of activities that we can integrate into these micro teaching lessons? I remember specifically the not your average bingo. This is actually a nice opener type activity. So what you do for not your average bingo is you put like a list of terms that you really want the kids to understand the differences of and things. 
I'll just stay with the reflexives just for the example. May lavo, lavo, pongo, may pongo, things like that. And the kids, you know, write them and you write them up on the board. And then these are all words that hope terms they hopefully either have seen or they're familiar. And then they write them on their bingo sheet in English. And then what you do is you tell them a story using the words on, on the vocab list. And they check them off on the box as they go. And like, so they're checking off the difference of I wash, I wash, I wash myself or something like that. And the idea behind it is as they're listening, those who struggle listening are simply listening for just that word in Spanish, but they're still understanding what it means. And when I did that with reflexives, for example, my kids said, oh, so the may means you're doing it to yourself. I'm like, yeah, but it's all in the target language. They're getting that feedback loop of whether they understand stuff. And I tend to speak and write at the same time. So those can both see and write at the same time. That's one. The other is the minute to win it. That's pretty popular. I get a grid of all these terms they need to conjugate and then conjugate or translate whatever we feel it needs to be. And they all have a set time to work together as a team and fill in what they mean. And then I walk around the classroom and I might say, hey, Joshua, guys, it doesn't have that. This is what the problem is. And then I go and I check and then we start the timer again and they can go make corrections and do more translations or conjugations, whatever we want to do. And I go and check and like, and usually kids get better. (laughs) The first round is usually pretty ugly. And the second round, they get better. I'm like, okay, one last round, everyone. And what's nice with that is they get that feedback within a couple minutes. It really takes about 10 minutes for them really to do. I'd say 10 to 12 minutes. And I find that's a good practice. It's a good application. And with this micro teaching approach, do you find that there's particular content or grade levels that it seems that it's better suited for? Or is it useful kind of across the board? I believe it's useful across the board. Because no matter what level you're at, taking a step back and making sure you understand the core principles does really work. And I think it's useful for whatever you're teaching. Most of my examples here I've given are grammar. Very specific for those who need to teach targeted grammar like I do under my curriculum sometimes. Also works really well for reading as well. It works really well for listening activities. It works very well for writing. Like, you know, saying to students as we're learning output, you know, how to write, hey, you're only going to do this for five to 10 minutes. And then I'm going to take a look at it. We're going to kind of work through it and just reduces the anxiety for a lot of students. I also use it for reading. Before we do a reading, I do a very short, like micro reading in the same language, in the same style that they're going to read to sort of help them work through those kinks and also to see if they're ready. You know, make sure I'm giving them a reading that they're actually ready for. You clearly have done your, your research in this area, and I love that. I'm a huge research person, so I always appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. And where are you continuing to sort of draw your inspiration from as you continue down this journey? So for me, um, a lot of my inspiration comes from outside the traditional educational field. It came from um, professional development. The main people I looked at when I did a lot of my work in this was Hanshaw and Henson, and they really talked about perceptions of microlearning, microteaching for teacher education, and how specifically help teachers become better teachers. And I was thinking, hmm, helps teachers, will probably help students. Makes sense. Major and Caladrino, they wrote an article called Beyond Chunking, and they talked about essentially microteaching being chunking, but on overdrive. 
and saying it's more than just that. And theirs was a good source of inspiration. And so was Ramesh. And he talked about how it was more, it was a very effective way for instruction. And it gave greater confidence for those people. Beyond just professional development, there's a book out there, uh, Atomic Habits. Have you ever read it by James Clear? Uh, Somebody recently recommended it to me at school, one of my colleagues. (laughs) And Atomic Habits, for me, is a good way of explaining it. So the whole idea behind Atomic Habits is how to make, you know, good habits just a part of your lifestyle. And there's a really good example in the book where there was a guy who didn't really want to work out. So he went to the gym for five minutes. And then he'd leave. And then easily, five minutes became 10 minutes. And it becomes 15. And and, I think you sort of see the point here is... You work with kids on something, you know, you present it for five minutes, they apply it, you practice, and then maybe you continue or you say, you know, we're going to make a different kind of activity, you know, to kind of still hit that, like, that hit that information, we're going to come at it from a different angle. Um, And eventually, you know what, you know, we are good. We could read for 15 minutes now on our own. Like, we're we're, we're there. And it's that same concept of just doing things incrementally, because no matter what, it needs to become a habit. And if it's a source of anxiety then the learners are not going to really be engaged. And I remember one of the things you uh, mentioned in the workshop was that idea of if there's a certain type of activity that students really like, they look forward to it. And if there's one of the modes, like maybe it's listening or maybe it's speaking, which is their high anxiety place, they know that this isn't going to be a 45 minute lesson in that high anxiety place, but it's going to be a a micro time and then we're going to move on to something else. Well, that's actually, you know, I'm very glad you mentioned that because to me, a lot of people say, I do micro teaching, Lindsay. I break everything up into 15 minute chunks, five minutes we apply. And I, you know, the way I said in the session you're at is I compared general instruction, like this giant wave of information coming at our learners and it washes over them and they can't absorb much and they're just stressed out. And then we give them a break. And then the wave comes again. <laughs> Micro teaching is like breaking your class into little waves that go in different directions. So you will have that small chunk. But one thing I really try to do is vary it. So if, I, so if I'm focusing on that same topic that I talked to you about before, like routine, reflexive, non-reflexives, we might have something very targeted, very grammarly, if you will, for the kids who like that. But then there's something with reading. Then there'll probably be something with listening. Then there might be a game then there might be a speaking. That way, when the kid's looking at the lesson plan, they go, oh, well, I don't like reading, but you know what? We're going to get to play a game. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Oh, we get to listen. And that kind of builds more buy-in as well. And also as a teacher, if the activity doesn't work, you're moving on to another one. So you're presenting, say, at the beginning of the class, the the outline of the class to the students so they know what's coming. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my class, we have about 90 minutes. I assume about five-ish activities usually per class is what we get done. And so the first thing might be conversar. The kid's like, oh, we're going to speak. But you know what? We're moving on to reading next. (laughs) That's good. Or if the kid that's not big into the book that we're reading, it's like, well, I even heard kids say, well, I know this is only going to be 10 to 15 minutes. So like we're going to get to move on. And then there's a listening activity. And then they all know there's something there. 
that they like. And now the crazy thing is I'm actually covering the same material just in four different ways, four to five different ways. So what will happen is when you do a micro teaching approach, what you might find is instead of covering chapters one to two one day, you might need two days to cover it. But what will happen is they're going to know it better, most likely, because you've slowed down and then you've done other activities to support it. Yeah. And you're also focusing on the the different modes, you know, whereas mm-hmm. one activity tends to be in one of the communication modes. Whereas if you have five opportunities for activities, then you're going to make sure and hit up the other modes. So that's helpful. And odds are they're going to get the material at some mm-hmm. point, you know, because mm-hmm. some get it by reading, some get it by listening. You know, one of my favorite reading to do, we're re- reading a book in my class and we do like a speaking thing, you know, to practice, like just how to use stuff and, and the vocabulary and the content. And then I'll be like, okay, everyone, we're going to work on these pages. And I'll say, Joshua, you and your partner, look at page 10. I want you to find five words you think kids need to know. And they'll write them down in Spanish and they look it up in English. Might as well use their phones for something useful. And then another kids get a different page and a different page. And then we get the whole list of words and then we do something with it. Maybe it's the bingo game. Maybe we input it for a game, a virtual game later or something like that. So that's about another five to 10 minutes. You know, they're looking, they're gathering meaning, and then we practice reading together. And then I may read it out loud. And then I will say, okay, each group, I want you to answer this set of questions. This group answers this set of questions. This group answers this set of questions, like two questions. Then we go over what they mean. And then maybe you do that game. And then the micro output for me sometimes is come up with three to four true or false statements about what we just read. And I use those to actually build an assessment later on. So uh, since you brought up assessments, I do want to ask about that. Are your assessments done in a micro? I don't even know what that would mean, but (laughs) can you just talk about assessments and (laughs) the whole idea of how they work into micro teaching? Well, if we think about it, um, when I first started doing this, um, I started doing microassessment, or excuse me, micro-teaching in terms of grammar. And then I realized it worked really well. I just said to the kids, I'll explain this to you for five minutes. We'll practice. We'll practice again for five minutes, and we move on. And I can cover the rest of it the next day. That went really well. Started doing it in reading. Okay, everyone, it's only for 10 minutes. We'll work on this for 10, five to 10 minutes. A little practice. We move on. That was going really well. And I was giving traditional assessments and those were not going really well. And I'm like, well, why is that? And then I realized, wait a minute, because I'm not assessing them in the way they're learning. (laughs) So what I started doing is I would break my assessments up into like chunks. I gave the easiest part the first day and the kids would do it. It took 15 minutes, you know, tops. I grade them. We do the next part the next day. And what I found is if I noticed there was a problem, I could just stop the assessment. Being like, wait a minute, we're not ready (laughs) because clearly there's a problem. And I also found the students got more confident with it because it was just so much information. And I began to realize, do students not do well because they just are exhausted? Their brains are exhausted. You know, if you teach a level one, two or three learner, they're maybe at an eight-year-old level, (laughs) depending on the student. And that age is not usually meant to do like these hour-long assessments so you know the one comment I always get in all this is like oh Lindsay this is really great but they have to learn how to do these longer assessments they have to learn how to read longer and I'm like I don't disagree with you but do they need to do it from the beginning you know I'm a competitive runner and if I was helping someone get ready for a marathon or half marathon I'm not going to send them out on a 10 mile run 
I'll send them out for a mile, maybe two. <laughs> and then they take a break. And the next day we do a couple more. And then we do a couple more. And then as they start showing the ability and the stamina, then you just make it a little bit longer. And if you do that, no one's going to get hurt. If you do this in the classroom, start off small. They're going to be a lot better. And I would argue even threes, fours, starting off on a unit on smaller pieces and varying it will just ensure greater success for everyone. Happy we got to the assessment piece. Uh, There's uh, always something that's on... Uh on teachers' minds because it's something it's just always there and it's something that has to be done. So at this point in our conversation, as we start to wrap up a little bit, I like to do this little game. I call this or that. And uh, it's where we pull the teacher curtain aside and learn a little bit more about you. It's just going to ask you this or that and tell us which one and maybe why. Here we go. Here's the first one. Ready? There's a party. Are you more apt to be the one who planned it or are you attending as a guest? This is a hard one. Um, <laughs> probably attending, but uncomfortably so. <laughs> I prefer planning. I'm a control I, I like to I'm a control freak. I like to have everything go perfectly, but we don't tend to love it, have a lot of parties at our house, so I'd probably attending. Your to-do list. Is it sort of a, you keep it mentally in your head or is it written down in some way somewhere? It's written down and categorized. Not even hesitation. <laughs> it's, you know, I've actually gotten a lot better. I used to give myself like way too many things. And now I put it into sometimes high priority, medium priority, or it can wait. Or sometimes it, it, there's even further categories by, by like its purpose. My respect for you has grown in the last 20 seconds more than I could ever <laughs> have imagined. The priority of to-do lists that is speaking my language. Okay. And uh, this last one, you kind of actually touched upon at the beginning, but what's on your playlist right now when you go out running? Is it music or are you listening to people talk? Um, it really depends. Um, I have podcasts and then my music selection is very eclectic. There's everything from Ricky Martin to like, oh my goodness. Um Alberto Soler, there's to rap, mm -hmm. to rock. I mean, it's an eclectic, it's an eclectic mix. Excellent. My husband will listen to it and be like, did you make this or did the kids make this? <laughs> I am sure there are teachers that would appreciate connecting with you to, you know, go a little further, learn a little more about this, bounce some ideas off of you. What's the best way for teachers to connect with you? Twitter, as you know, sending me a message there is pretty good. Um, at Lindsay Mitchell, L-I-N-Z-E. Uh, Mitchell. I'll give you my email. You can put that in the show notes. I would say that's probably the best one. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today, uh, Lindsay, and for letting us have a lot more of the, the insight that you have on this whole topic of micro-teaching. Really appreciated your time today. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye. What are your takeaways from that conversation with Lindsay Mitchell? There are certainly benefits to breaking down content topics and creating multiple opportunities for students to engage and remain interested. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Lindsay. You'll also see the link to sign up for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. 
Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.